KUOZ 100.5 is an FCC-licensed radio station operated by the University of the Ozarks, Clarksville, Arkansas. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to From the Concert Hall with your hosts Corbin Sturch and Zachary Payne, your vintage radio program here on KUOZ 100.5 FM. Community radio produced by the Radio Television Video Department here at University of the Ozarks in Clarksville, Arkansas. From the concert hall plays some of the famous artists of the past, as well as features a few of our very own from right here at home. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we take you live right here to our very own little concert hall. Thank you for tuning in from the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary Payne. And I'm Corbin Sturch. Before we begin our show tonight, I'd like to talk about some happenings here in the community. The Clarksville Lions Club will present a pancake breakfast Tuesday, March 31st, at the Clarksville First United Methodist Church. This event will go from 6.30 in the morning until 12.30 in the evening. Right now, the cost is $5 per person or $3 for children 12 and under. This is an all-you-can-eat event, folks. So, if you wake up on the 31st and you're hungry and you really want some pancakes, $5, you've got a ticket in, it's all you can eat. Now, if you live here in the dorms, you're a bit crunched for time, you've got class in 30 minutes, if you can get an order of over six or more orders, you can call and they'll deliver. Now, that's not just here at the university, that's anywhere, folks. Orders of six or more and they will deliver. The number to call is 479-979-2260. Again, that's 479-979-2260. Also happening in the community this week, right now there is an art show on display in the Stevens Gallery at the Walton Farm Arts Center um, featuring Courtney Leonard. It's called Breach Log 16. It's artwork she's done. I, I think it has a lot of, you know, seashore kind of rustic feel in that sense that's what I got out of it whenever I went I know it's a great exhibit I had a chance to walk through today it's worth going to check out it'll be on display until March 27th I believe now on the show tonight we are very blessed to have a special guest with us someone who's considered to be one of the leading voices in Presbyterian in America today the Reverend Dr. Jack Haberer Reverend Haberer is a Presbyterian pastor, he's an author, he's a lecturer, and he's also the former editor of the Presbyterian Outlook magazine here that goes to all the Presbyterian churches in America. Jack, thank you for being on the show with us tonight. Great to be with you, Corbin and Zach. Thank you. So before we begin tonight, can you give us a bit more about yourself, a bit better job than I could have done? You know yourself a lot better than I do, clearly. Surely, surely. Well, I've been a Presbyterian pastor for about 30 years. Um, Before that, I was raised Roman Catholic. I was a Jesus freak. I went to Baptist churches and Assemblies of God churches and Nazarene churches and a Free Methodist College um, and to black Pentecostal churches, even for a couple of years, and non-denominational churches, what I call fundamental charismatical churches, um, 
all kinds of stripes, different parts of the country, and gained so much from all of them. I just kind of fell into the Presbyterian Church after going to a seminary where I thought I'd still be a non-denominational fundapentecostalical, but ended up being <laughs> hired to a Presbyterian Church and um, ended up falling in love with it. And um, I did spend end up end up doing uh, ten years as a pastor to rocket scientists around the Kennedy Space Center. Then moved to Houston and was pastor to rocket scientists, people working at the Johnson Space Center. Then um, nine years as a magazine editor of the Presbyterian Outlook, as you said, an independent magazine serving the Presbyterian Church USA. And then just four months ago, took on a pastorate again. So I'm now in South Florida and um, in Naples at, as pastor of Vanderbilt Presbyterian Church. Now, that wouldn't be connected to the Vanderbilt family, would it? Has nothing to do with it. In fact, I was hoping there would be some really rich Vanderbilts there. <laughs> it's actually named after a beach that's nearby. The original pastor started having services right on the beach, and so we just called it that. And then when they bought land, it was a couple miles away from there, but they still kept the name. So I don't even know who's named after. What, what, probably some great famous Vanderbilt retired in that area, so the, house, the area was named after him, but that's all I know about it. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. No. That's a guess still. <laughs> Hearing your story of faith growing up Roman Catholic then going all over that religious spectrum, yeah. I can definitely relate only in reverse for me. Hmm. I know I grew up Church of Christ, okay. so totally opposite into the spectrum in terms of religious conservatism and church set up, partly theology also. And then I made my way to the Methodist Church, worked around the Baptist a bit, Went to a Pentecostal church once. Uh, <laughs> that uh, Did it scare you? <laughs> a bit. It was an experience. Yeah. Not bad, <laughs> just an experience. Made my way all the way around until finally I ended up, and now I'm Episcopalian. I'm very happy in my faith. Which means you're more Catholic than the Catholics are now. Episcopalians <laughs> tend to be more, more formal and more liturgical and high church than even than a lot of Catholics. I got, I've, I've got a sister that's married to Episcopal priest, so that's a whole part of my family experience, too. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I'd say more more Catholic than Catholic. <laughs> well, minus the Pope. Anyway, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, of course, but um, the Episcopalians have gone really, really much into very rich, classical, traditional, um, and, and uh, you know, highly symbolic um, liturgy in their worship. It's, it's very rich, but um, it's a long way from the Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've definitely got a long way from that. Yeah. I know, Zach, you... Nothing Been all special. over the place a bit. Well, not so much. Nothing special for me. I mean, I was born, raised Baptist. My parents are Baptist. My grandfather's Baptist and uh, has a doctorate in uh, angelical studies. And yeah. so, I mean, it's just kind of been what I've grown up into. But since uh, being in college and stuff like that, I've, I've looked a little bit into the uh, Presbyterian, uh, being that, you know, I go to U of O. So that's, that's right. definitely what's done here. And so I've seen a lot of that, and uh, I'm actually uh, participating in Lent this season uh figured i would see how that is and uh it's been tough but it uh yeah it's been tough but i think it's good for me well that's great that's great now Mm -hmm. you mentioned a doctorate someone in your family having a doctorate now reverend haber you're i when listening to your speech earlier with Wace, the walton arts ideas series you said your father was a psychologist growing up if my mother was a psychology professor yes okay my dad was an engineer so i have that kind of engineering brain um, and somewhat kind of mathematical thinking I like inherited from him. But my mom was a psychology professor. 
um, now 90 years old, still with us. But um, um, so, yeah, there's a whole lot of that kind of psychological, philosophical thinking. And I say philosophical because she was Jesuit trained, Catholic, in the Catholic schools from kindergarten through college. So mm -hmm. that Jesuit Catholic uh, mindset is very mind stretching and very philosophical, theological, but also very much about human development, human behavior. Um, it comes along with the field of psych. And I learned a lot. I took a lot of extra courses my own self to try to capitalize on, on her influence. Hmm. Now, I know you say she's 90. She's, is she still teaching? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> Enjoying that, she, retirement? She, yeah, she, well, yeah. She's in a nursing home, afraid. She's had a few strokes and has, has pretty, oh. Just, oh. yeah, it's very limited in, in, in movement and of real fall risk. So, fortunately, she was near three of my kids, uh, my siblings, so they stay here. They're with her a lot. But uh, So, she is enjoying the full company of the grandkids. Yeah, yeah. She gets <laughs> to see a lot of grandkids in the process. That's right. That's always good. Yeah. Now, you're working on a book now. I know you've already got several out. So I guess before we go into your new book, you might want to tell us a bit about your old books. Happily. The first book is titled Living the Presence of the Spirit. Um, it actually began while I was at a Pentecostal Bible college um, studying the overflow, the, the survey of the Bible, and had this kind of insight one day. And it was actually Maundy Thursday, Holy Thursday in the, in the Christian tradition. Um, and the verse of the Bible crossed my mind. It was kind of obscure. The, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And, and suddenly the whole Bible story un unfolded before my eyes, kind of like your life passing before your eyes, before you think you're going to die, um, except this was a joyous thing. I kind of saw the whole story of the Bible as a movement from people being apart from God to trying to be closer to God and God being closer but never really quite there. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, the, the veil of the temple, which was a kind of a symbol of the separation between heaven and earth, between God and us, was torn from top to bottom. God breaks out, and because of Jesus' forgiveness, God can now move into our lives, and on Pentecost did that very thing. Um, it was a kind of a stunning moment, and it was in a Pentecostal experience. I cried and cried, and I had, <laughs> right after that, I had a six-hour drive home from there from school because it was Easter holiday weekend and spring break to follow, and I cried like the whole trip because I was just overwhelmed in, in that true Pentecostal spirit. But it actually kind of put all of that experience into a new context, which is to say that the Holy Spirit is not just the part of God that gets us excited and helps us spiritual gifts. It's really the presence it's the holy spirit is really about god being in our life that god brings us into fellowship and that all those other things are byproducts but the heart of it is that simply we're in touch with god i end up writing a dissertation on the subject i wrote did a lot of papers along the way um, and out of that dissertation came this other book not written like a scholarly dissertation but a book that normal people can read um, <laughs> and um yeah I mean, in fact the dissertation i tried to rewrite the dissertation and submit it and the doctor and the publisher said reads like a dissertation that's been softened that still reads like a dissertation <laughs> <laughs> so i start all over again and wrote a real people book on, um, on what the christian life looks from the perspective of the spirit coming and moving into our lives um, so that's book number one Book number two was a completely different perspective, and um, that was written much later on, although they both came out um, about the same time. This is titled God Views, all is one word, subtitled The Convictions That Drive Us and Divide Us. Over my years in, in the ministry, I became very active in my life and my denomination and the arguments that go on, the debates that go on, and got very connected in all of them and came to realize that what we always kept characterizing as the divide between the liberals and the conservatives 
wasn't really that way. It was a mischaracterization and really simplified a way to decide who are my friends and who are my enemies, but that's not what we're after in the church anyway. But it, and, and in fact, there, as I could see, five different ways people understand what's really important about what we're supposed to do in the world, what God's doing in the world, but it's not just simple liberal and conservative. It's about convictions about telling the truth or, con, or and pre- pre- preserving the truth or others about having spiritual life with God and prayer and all that. Others about building up the church. Others about more about caring for the needy, hungry, and poor and others that are fighting for justice. And that each one of these five God views has merit to it, has greatness to it, and left to itself becomes problematic. It becomes, has a real dark side um, fo- folks fighting for truth become judgmental and the spirituality folks become flighty and, and, and esoteric and the ecclesiastes or the churchy people are all about taking care of us and forgetting about the rest and the, the, the ones caring for the needy, hungry, poor, the altruists I call them, uh, they're so busy taking care of them they, don't, they lose God sometimes in the mix and the, um, those really fighting for justice, what I call the activists, tend to just go off the wall and have, just go on a, every new bandwagon of an, a, something and so that the church really operates best when all are together, even though we'll make each other crazy and we'll argue like cats and dogs, not finding the same point of commonality, but when we take the time to listen to one another, we learn things from each other and we become a better church as a result. So I'm arguing that the, these convictions that might drive us in those five different directions can also not divide us but bring us together if we really work work at it. So I'm trying to just so kind of a picture of what the church is really about and how we can be a better church together. Hmm. Okay. So, in hearing all that about that book, it leads me to the question, in your new book, it almost seems like a con- playoff or a continuation of part of that book. Your new book's held, you know, what's so great about being good? An overview of New Testament decision-making. Tell us, give us a brief introduction to that, then we're going to take a short break and then actually come back, accept some call-ins, and really go deep on that. Happily glad to do that. Here's the deal. Among the things that we debate about and argue about, a lot of you know, people on one side, on another side about one issue or another, and frankly, all of us have to make decisions like, what college do I want to go to? What major do I want to focus on? Do I want to do a minor or a second major? Um, what kind of person do I want to be romantic with, share some love and romance with? Um, is there somebody special for me? What, I'm, what am I going to do after graduation? What kind of a career path do I want to do? Do I want to do graduate school? Those are big questions that all of us are trying to struggle through. At the same time, we're also struggling through the broader questions like what about um, abortion, pro-life, pro-choice? Uh, what about um, male-female kinds of relationships? What about... Um, heterosexuality, homosexuality, same gender, opposite gender. What about, I mean, there's a lot of arguments, and the question is how do we sort those things out? My basic simple thesis is, is that if we really go back and read the Bible, and I mean really read the Bible, not just the parts that we like and skip all the rest, and, or the parts that make us feel guilty and therefore must be right, or, and we avoid the rest, because sometimes we're just neurotic enough that we really need to feel guilty, so those are the things we pay attention to, but skip the rest. If we read the Bible through and fairly thoroughly and thoughtfully, we will become less dogmatic, not more dogmatic, less narrow-minded, but more broad-minded, because the Bible actually gives a very broad range 
of what a right choice is, a broad range of possibilities. It calls us to grow, grow in wisdom so that we are more capable and more equipped to make good, wise decisions and less locked into just this is the right, this is the commandment, therefore we, that, that's what we must do all the time. Uh, the Bible's got a lot of contradictions. It's got a lot of ambiguity in it. And I believe that that's designed by God not to make us crazy or just to give us things to skip over, but to help us broaden in our wisdom and understanding so that we actually do see things in a broader way and become wiser and make, make gooder, better decisions than worse decisions, not, but just not simply watching for the one single handwriting in the sky that's going to say this is the one thing to do. Quick overview. All right. Well, we're going to take a break here real fast. To this break, we're going to listen to Be Thou My Vision as performed by the Texas Tech Wind Symphony. So please enjoy and stick with us as we come back and hear more about Jack's new book, What's So Great About Being Good.
KUOZ 100.5 is an FCC-licensed radio station operated by the University of the Ozarks, Clarksville, Arkansas. You are listening to From the Concert Hall, here on KUOZ 100.5 FM, community radio from University of the Ozarks here in Clarksville, Arkansas. Thank you for tuning in to From the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary Payne. And I'm Corbin Sturch. With us this week... We have the Reverend Dr. Jack Haber. Jack, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you guys. Now, tonight on the show, we're talking with Reverend Haber a bit about his new book that's coming out this year, What's So Great About Being Good? An Overview of New Testament Decision-Making. So, Reverend Haber, can you give us another brief introduction to that book and then maybe go a bit deeper right now? Okay. Well, here's the deal. Jesus taught... And he said, I have not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. Not a jot nor tittle of the law, which is tiny little marks, will ever be passed, will pass away. And that's all well and good. And I believe that's true. But there are a number of times in Jesus' ministry where he broke the law. The law said, don't work on the Sabbath. And he healed on the Sabbath. He let the disciples um, collect um, food on the Sabbath that is pluck grain and, and rub it and prepare it and then and eat it while it was still Sabbath. And those were against the explicit teaching of the law. And in fact, the religious leaders of his day scolded him. And how can you do that? That's, that's against the law. And he justified it, but he still was kind of messing with the law and giving a new shape to it. And so too, in a lot of ways, the disciples, after Jesus died and ascend, rose and ascended to heaven, they also taught things that were contrary to the law. And what's been my question for many years is why? How did they do that? And is there some guidance from them and from Jesus himself that would cause us to see the law in a different way? Because we tend to be very black and white in our country, in our forms of Christianity, and that can be Catholic and Church of Christ. It can be Pentecostal. It can be Episcopal. uh, It can be Presbyterian and Methodist. We all have a way of getting very rigid about some of the laws in the Bible not all necessarily the same ones, but we tend to have them, ones that we hold on to very closely. And Jesus and the apostles seem to have a broader way of dealing with them. And so I've wrestled for many years asking, are there some ways that we can read the laws in the ways that they did that are going to allow us to be more uh, open-ended, a little bit more generous, a little bit more... Um, uh, willing to be, to see things in different ways. Are there guidances for us from that? And what I'm suggesting, in fact, is that yes, there are. That they dealt with what we've often called absolutes. They saw as benchmarks. Yes, you measure according to them, but benchmarks allow more room than an absolute does. An absolute, for an absolute, you can only be totally right, totally complete, totally God, and then otherwise there's nothing, otherwise you miss the mark entirely. Um, the laws, as they really function in Scripture, leave rooms for approximation and ad- adaptations. Uh, and so I've been exploring that in the writing of this book and trying to lay this out in a pretty comprehensive way on what's right and wrong. As a religion major, that if anyone knows me, that's one of my many majors because mm-hmm. I'm one of those lifelong students, apparently. Keep it <laughs> going. Keep going, man, as long as you can. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the fact that the way the Jewish people would have written the Bible— would have been that it's made to be interpreted and argued. I know it's a very profoundly found 
um, Jewish belief, I think specifically rabbinic Judaism, I don't quote me on that one, yeah. that the best way to learn the Bible is to argue the Bible. Very much so. You know, in, in Jesus' day, in the Apostles' day, there were two major schools of study just in, in Jerusalem itself, the Hillel School and the Gamaliel School. And um, they had their own different ways in taking things, and so they, they wrestled with all of those things. And it was Gamaliel later on when people were asking, what should we do about this whole new religion group? What about them? And, and his response was, you know, if they're wrong, then it's going to fade away. If they're right, then we're fighting against God, so let's just kind of let it go on for a while. Gamaliel was a great influential leader of the time, but yes, they would they would wrestle and debate, and their their rabbinic studies were simply around sitting around a rabbi scholar, and you just wrestle and debate and argue, and um, and that would be true to good Jewishness, good in, in the days of the rabbinic studies. Um, and um, in fact, I think this is a recovery of that. We're going one go back to saying let's wrestle these things, and that's instead of just quoting chapter and verse as if that's the beginning and end of a conversation. See, as someone who's not Jewish, that's the one thing I can appreciate the most about Judaism is their their choice of how they think they're supposed to learn the Bible, how they've written it to be learned. I love that. I think that's the best way to learn it. Zach, do you have any thoughts on that one? I can't help but agree. Um, I was raised in a household. My mom works for the law school up at the U of A, and so naturally we get into debates often. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, that's the best way that we ever learned anything. As Like kids, like my brothers and sisters and I, our uh, parents, us, we would uh, we'd argue both of our sides and try and see both ways of looking at things. And so I could definitely understand that, looking at it inside a Bible sense or really almost any other sense. That's right. The... Um now, I, I want to say that the, this, the Bible doesn't lend itself to just anything goes. And right. that's, that's the good thing about good Judaic study, as well as good um, Jesuit study in the Roman Catholic Church and good Reform study in my church, the Presbyterian Church. We tend to be known as the Jesuits of Protestantism because we like to wrestle and debate and argue things. We get embarrassed sometimes because the press makes us look really bad because we're arguing about things. But we really believe that you ought to learn that way. And yes, some things just truly are out, are beyond the pale, beyond the reach of um, a faithful biblical faith. But within the range of biblical faith, there is a lot of room. In fact, frankly, the different major differences in most of our denominations are usually because some group did land on a good insight and others didn't like it, and they end up having to fight about it and, and going over their own way. And we all made dumb mistakes along the way, and some of most all of our traditions have some dumb ideas in them, uh, which is the other reason people want, don't want to be a part of us. But most all of ours have some really important essences of things, and the more that we learn and discuss and debate and wrestle those things together, the more all of us get a clearer sense of what faithfulness looks like, what the truth looks like, and where there is truly room for multiple choice options that are all within the range of truth, not in an exclusive way, but in a shared way. Now, to me that boils down the big question, what point are you arguing in your book? What is your big point of the book? If you could summarize it up in one phrase or statement, what, do you, what would that be? Tough question right there because it's re- I, I have a hard time making it that succinct. But it is, if I can, it's that 
the teachings of Scripture call forth from us our very best aspirations to be closer to God and to be more loving toward people. And at the same time, it leaves the range of options on how to do that pretty wide open, gives us some direction, but also gives multiple choice options that call for us to grow in wisdom so that we can do those things well. I am absolutely sure that there might be a listener or two out there who has questions for you about your book, Methods of Interpretation, or comments on how it makes them feel. So I'd like to take this moment to open up the lines to anyone who wants to call in. The number to call is 479-979-1490. Again, that is 479-979-1490. We'd love for you to call in and ask your questions. But while we're waiting on those calls, Jack, I'm I'm sorry, Reverend Haber, can you... Jack's fine. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Can you maybe go a a bit deeper on that point? I think that might help our listeners to better understand or to form their questions. Let me give you a particular and obvious example. Okay. Started this, and this will be an early part of the book to help that. The Bible calls for us to keep holy the Lord's day. And up until about 50 years ago, most Christian traditions really did do that. They didn't work on Sundays. Or if you're Jewish or Seventh-day Adventist, you didn't work on Saturdays. And you really made those days to be set aside for God's work. Over the last 50 years, a lot of stores are still now open that were not allowed to be open before. And people taking that more lightly. But still... There is that sense of setting the day apart from God. And yet, from the very beginning of time when people were being told to do that, the religious leaders were working their backsides off on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, Saturday or Sunday, because that's their big day. You're preaching, you're you're leading in the liturgy, or you're leading in the singing. You're working really hard, working up a sweat. And so you'd take Monday off as your day off. In fact, we'd even call it my Sabbath or my Lord's Day is Monday, or my Friday is my day off, or my Sabbath. We've always adapted the standard, the Lord's Day of Sunday, or Jewish on Saturday. We've adapted that to another day, even by the religious leaders, because that was the only way to realistically try to do the spirit of the law, having a day set aside for God, but doing it in another particular way. I'm suggesting that when it comes to telling the truth, you usually should tell the truth, but sometimes, but if it's a seven-year-old niece or sister that asks you if you like her dress and you think it's awful, you don't tell her it looks awful. You tell her that she looks gorgeous. You tell her, I love you and you're wonderful. You're such a pretty girl. And wow, you don't tell all the truth that she really was asking for, but you tell her the truth that really matters is how much you love her and how much she's special to you. Um, So white lies can fit within the range of telling the capital T truth, the big truth. We all do that. And in fact, in so many other parts of our lives, we're trying to do the right thing, but we adapt and adjust and approximate what might not be exactly what the law was or what we were told you should always do, but it's still in the spirit of that. We're aiming for that. And by doing so, we're, we're capturing, capturing and living out the, more of the essence of what is the law, um, which ultimately is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor 
as ourselves. Hmm. Now, for you, what has been the hardest about adapting that to your life? I know you talked a bit about it in your speech. I'm going to re-ask that question because it's a really great story. The first big part of it, the thing that started with with all of this, and I didn't share this in the speech, was that while they back in the 1980s, when I was a young pastor, an elderly woman collapsed on the sidewalk walking into church, literally just outside the door. She collapsed as the service was about to begin, and as we began to sing, the ambulance came in with EMTs and took her out. And by the time I got to see her at the hospital, she was 70% brain dead. And by the next morning, she was 90% brain dead. And her son was being flown in from Pearl Harbor. He was in the Navy and got flown in in order to be able to tend to her. And now I was on the way to the hospital to ask, what do I do? And at that day, the idea of discontinuing life support was unheard of. It was, I mean, there was only one case that it was always being talked about in the news. But otherwise, you never heard about it. And now I was having to face it. And it occurred to me that that first command out of God's mouth in the beginning of the Bible, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, crossed my mind. I thought, oh my, yes, we're supposed to be life generating, but it also says subdue it. And it could be, could it be that the ethical right thing at this point is to actually discontinue life support? Well, that seems obvious now because 80% of the deaths in the hospital are because someone discontinued life support, discontinued life support. But back then it was like, oh my, what do I do? And I'm a, li- I'm a pro-life guy. How do I do that? But it just suddenly seemed to be the right thing. And I realized that those big discussions, life and death questions, yes, there's a general principle about choosing life and, and pursuing life, but sometimes death can be a legitimate alternative. The same has also gone 25 years later on the matter of human sexuality. What about same-gender affections? The tradition says it's a man and a woman till death do us part. That's the way, that's been the standard. That's been treated as the absolute. I'm saying, no, life and death is not an absolute. Sexuality, heterosexuality is not an absolute. It is a benchmark. It's the kind of standard by which everything is to be measured. But everybody's, no one's actually the absolute because truly in the absolute it would be a virgin boy and a virgin girl and in fact, it would be a virgin boy that's never had a lustful thought and a virgin girl that's never had a lustful thought. Try that one on and, <laughs> and um, get together and consecrate a service in, in the worship of ser- service of worship and then consummate that night not knowing what you're doing because you've never had a lustful thought. But what do you do? <laughs> I mean, but that would be the model. That would be the absolute. Oh, of course, it's not an absolute. That's the benchmark. Everything else is an approximation. And I'm saying that, in fact, as we have allowed things that we didn't used to allow, like divorcees to remarry, um, like people of different races to be able to marry, because it used to the churches used to prohibit that. If we can allow that, maybe we can also allow same-gender couples to, who love one another to commit themselves. And as a good family says, even when they don't really think you're choosing the right person, ultimately the right answer is, whom you love, we will love. And if she is not of our religion or, she, or he's not of our race or isn't the, same, isn't the opposite gender, that's the word you love, we will love that person. We'll love them together. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, 
just on that entire aspect of what you've been talking about, um, my ideas on all that has always been that uh, Christ loved everyone, no matter what they had done. And so right. why should we do anything different, being that we are Christians, little Christ? Yeah. Why should yeah. we try and do anything different than what he was doing? Right. Speaking of questions and topics, we actually have just had a call in from Miss Susan Eatons. And she has a question for you, if you'll just give me a second to patch her through. All right. Look to, looking forward to hear from you, Susan. Susan, you're on the air. Can you hear us? Hey, good evening, gentlemen. I'm enjoying your show. Well, thank you. Um, and and I, I was listening there um, to that last point. And before I get to my question, I wanted to, to say um, that I thought it was really great that the Arkansas Presbytery, in their meeting, their annual meeting, um, just this past week, made a, I guess, a proclamation supporting um, all people and, and a very anti-discriminatory type of a statement and appreciated that. Um, and my question is, as a faith leader, as someone who is called on to um, answer a lot of questions and to shoulder a lot of burdens sometimes, how do you actually find relief and relief? And I'll hang up and listen. How, can you explain a little bit more about relief and release, or did, or did I lose you already? Yeah, okay. So, you know, uh, with your parishioners, I'm sure that they bring a lot of their problems and burdens and ills, you know, to you and seeking answers. And um, I would just imagine as as a, a minister that you would get tired and need some kind of renewal, and how do you get that? Oh, great question. Susan, thank you. First thank of all, you. let me comment about that Presbytery meeting. It happened to be here right on the campus of the University of Ozarks this last Friday and Saturday, and I was here as a guest um, beginning of my week-long sojourn here. I'm heading out tomorrow morning back to Florida, but um, it was really neat to be a part of that conversation uh, listening in on the conversation, particularly about that resolution that was adopted unanimously, called for no non-discrimination, called for um, the state of Arkansas to say we are not going to allow particularized discrimination against folks in terms of housing, in terms of employment, in terms of um, of kinds of services that we provide. And I think uh, it was a good move. I hope the state figures out um, a better way with uh, with moving forward. Um, I'm not going to pretend to know any of the nuances of all of that because I'm living a thousand miles from here. But it sounds like where the Presbytery is pressing for is the right direction. And I hope to see the state and the rest of our states go that way as well. Now about the question of ministerial dealing with all of this stuff. Yes, um, we do hear a lot of the struggles that people face. We hear a lot of the issues that people are going through and we get fatigued. In my case, number one, I've got a wonderful wife that I go home to after three, 38 years of um, marriage together. Um, and um, I'll be home with her tomorrow after uh, being gone this week. I've missed her. Um, Barbie's mm -hmm. been, a, been a, it's just a real wonderful partner to me. Challenges my ideas a lot and, and um, is totally uh, her own self as a, a very, very complete full person. Um, but we both very much love each other and get a lot of support out of that. I always have also had few things going. I'm a f kind of a fanatic about small groups. I've always had a pastor's prayer group I've been a part of um, locally in my uh, area that I've lived in. I've also got a national pastor's group that meets for three days every year. I've been doing it for over 20 years now. 
Uh, I've also been a part of prayer groups in my church where people would just come and pray with me, especially in my last church. There were five people that came early on and said, we want to pray for you. And I said, well, that's nice. They said, no, we want to do it face to face. I said, oh, are you kidding? They said, yeah, Wednesdays at eight in the morning. I said, you really are kidding, aren't you? And they said, no. And, and we did every Wednesday. And it was really basically, Jack, tell us what we need to pray for. And then they would just fervently pray with me through all those uh, issues that was that were facing me. And they were very trustworthy. They held everything in confidence. Um, and also my wife and I have also been part of small groups uh, many, many years um, of our lives that we've also had like five or six other couples we would be in, in group with that we could really share our hearts with. So I've really depended heavily on those groups wherein I could let my hair down. I didn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't be the leader. I was just one among the group and, um, and could really share my heart, my life, um, my, my hopes, my fears, discouragements. And, um, that's been really, really major lifelines for me. Now I'm an extrovert. So the groups work real well for me. Mm -hmm. Um, personal prayer life is also important and uh, for the introverts, especially. Um, but, uh, for me, it's been really real value to have those kind of relationships working. That's okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Susan, for calling in. It was great to hear from you. That's a really interesting way of putting it, like how you find your release from all the stresses of life, that you listen to the communities mm-hmm. and uh, everything going on with them, and the best way that you find release is to go back out into that community. Yeah. In fact, I will say that even in the writing of this book, I can't write a book without conversing the book. So I've lectured 10 chapters worth in a former church I was a part of. Um, While I was still in the magazine, I was going to the church, um, and and I lectured every week, and they would argue and dialogue with me through that. And I'm right now doing it all over again in my own pastorate. I'm halfway through the lectures of the book. And, in fact, in this case, I've got a morning men's Bible study, got an afternoon women's Bible study, and then the next night I got an open Bible study, men and women together. And so three times each week I'm going through, and, and with three different groups I'm going through the book, and their conversations with me are really valuable. I did a couple lectures at Austin Theological Seminary on the book a few weeks ago, and now doing one here at U of O. Each time gives me engagement with others and conversations with others. I've talked with scholars and all that. I love to engage with others so that their feedback, their questions, their ideas help me shape the book in a better way than I would do left to myself. That's awesome. And I can't help but kind of relate that back to a psychological standpoint because in psychology, when you have an idea or you have a paper, you want to release something uh, anywhere, you send it off to all the people you know, all the smart people, and they just tear it apart, send it back to you, you fix it, and you try again. That's right. That's right. And so I can't help but relate it back to that. Yeah. Right. So... You know, you said you've been through the book at, at least the first 10 chapters through. So, And it's, it's, there will be a total of 10, so that was the whole book. Okay, yeah. so you have been through the whole book. Oh, with, yeah. So do you think your congregation is going to read this book feeling like they already know it all, or do you hope that they'll take even more from it, find more? Because I know every time you go back over something, you find new things you might have missed before. Is that one of your hopes with it, that they'll grow even more from it? Well, for one thing, as it is with most churches, I've not preached through it. I've taught through it midweek, which means I've got a small percentage of the congregation actually Ah. here. Even though I've got three studies going, that's still all all told maybe 10 to 20 percent of the congregation that have actually sat through those studies. So the other rest of the congregation will hear about it for the first time when they read about it. My hope, yes, is though, I think, is that... um, 
this will still be a work in progress when it's published. Uh, this will be a book that might well have a second edition or third edition down the road because it is a lot of open en open endedness to it and a lot of uh, ideas that will not try to be conclusive. I mean, it'll, it, and the more I move from the heart aspirations to the ultimately adaptations and approximations, there become there's a lot of approximations adaptations that other people think of. And hopefully they'll write them to me, or they'll they'll talk with me about them and say, "Hey, what about this and that?" And that will that will be a continued learning experience for me as well as for them. Okay, I can definitely see how you would want that to be the continued learning experience. I know you did say you feel like in going to all these places and talking through it, it helps you with the book. Now, we're getting towards the end of the show here. So I'm going to have to pick a bit on your stay this last week. Do you feel that getting to come to Ozarks, spend a week here on retreat and work on your book has helped you shape it any more in any way? Well, the biggest, the biggest challenge for me has just been simply to sit down and write. Because that's get to get away from the church and all of my obligations. And frankly, the, the obligations, tasks of settling a home, because we just moved into our house and we took a few months being there before we got to get in our own home be able to get away from all of that and really focus on writing has been great i've also gotten some research help from the librarians in the in the library some great help to fill in some of the blanks of things that, that are a couple of chapters down the road that's been a real help but also being in the conversation with others which has been less of my time because of the study time uh, but actually been a sizable portion of my time has also been helpful. People have pressed me some on some points. Some of the questions even in tonight, um, I'm going to have to take back and jot down and give some more thought to, um, lest I don't say the things I want to say and say them in a way that don't come across in the way that I intend, um, because that's part of the writing it all the time is to get across what you want to say, not what people are going to interpret as something different than you intended. And I was hearing some of that in some of the questions I heard tonight. Uh, that's been helpful too. Hi. Well, it's nice to know that you've had that this stay has been helpful and it's helped you. I think I know that's always the point of the university to help people grow, but I, I think we all can relate in saying the hardest point is just sit, sitting down and writing. That's right. Mm -hmm. I can think of a paper I've got to write right now that yeah. <laughs> is looming on the doorstep. Yeah. Well, I'm that extrovert. <laughs> I like to be around people, and I and the writing. I got to get the people out of the room. I got to get focused <laughs> on myself, and that makes me crazy. It's like, okay, who can I call? What you know? Who mm -hmm. can I go talk to now? I it, 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 I have it's. I don't have officially ADHD, but I got a lot of friends that think I'm a poster child for it. So, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's 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 a real discipline to try to get away and settle down and do the do the writing. It's so. You all have been really good to me with helping me do, slice some time, set aside some time for that. I would definitely say our, I know you mentioned the library, the library is definitely the one place here on campus where you really can get away. You can hide yourself and never be found. Our That's library right. is just so immense in that sense. Yeah, beautiful library that way. Oh, absolutely. And the librarians, of course. If you ever have a question about any book, I mean, they know right where it's they at. They know it's phenomenal. everything. <laughs> they're phenomenal. They really are. They've helped us through every show this year. We This show would not have been possible is without so? them. Absolutely. A lot of our research we do, we've done just like you in the library, in a back mm -hmm. room, sitting recluse, yep. just working through it that way. So that's another thanks we can give to our library once again for another show. Thank you to everyone at the Robson Library here at University of the Ozarks 
thanks God, thanks be to God for the Robson Library and the, and the leadership there. Absolutely. People are really going to say that around finals week. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Uh, well, do you have any parting words before we cut to the end of the show? I really want to give you that chance to really get that last bit of the message across that you want people to know. Yeah. Thank you. I've, that's a good, good, good question to toss my way. You know, I happen to honestly believe that we're better together. And, you know, we really do need each other. And some of those other cliches that fit along that way, those lines. The tragedy, so much of the tragedy of American life right now, and specific to the American church and Christianity, Christian life, is this terrible need to separate from people who think differently from us. Whether it's red state people versus blue state people um, in our politics, where it's, where it's the most obvious because we just tend to go to the polar opposites and, and try to force people to be hardline and absolutists and absolute thinking like ourselves. Or in the church where it's you're either pro-gay or anti-gay or only it's all about Jesus only or not Jesus only. And um, we're doing so much damage to our witness because people look at that and say, if that's Christianity or that's Americanism for that matter, I don't need it. I don't want that. And they run the other way. But also damaging that the faith itself, by pushing to points of extreme, a faith that is far richer than the extremes would allow. Oh, sometimes we need a strong voice about justice, a strong voice about evangelism. And, not, and so I don't want to say we should, be mellow and moderate about everything, but that we also be teachable, that we be open to the possibility that some way, somehow, I just may possibly be wrong. How can I, I mean, there's such a lack of ability to, to, to acknowledge that and that somebody could possibly have something to say to me that I could learn from rather than just me being the one shouting them down with all they need to learn from me. We are so much better when we are together, whether it's differences in God views that, that uh, as I outlined earlier, differences in senses of, holy, of the Holy Spirit, whether it's high-wired high, high um, Pentecostalism and down, or downplayed um, uh, traditionalism or and, and uh, more uh, cerebral style worship or, and, and faith actions or particular in our ethics about it's always follow these absolutes but we'll disregard those other ones and those exceptions and those uh, adaptations. No, if we can be together talking, learning together, opening our Bibles together and saying what we hear in it because we're going to hear different things because things jump off the page for different people in different ways. And if we'll listen to what, how it's worked for them, then we can hear better ourselves. We really are better together than apart, better learning from one another rather than separating and going off into our different enclaves, our different igloos or um, smokestacks or silos, um, let's be, be together and continue to learn from other. And I don't mean just within Christianity. I mean also beyond Christianity. Um, one fellow, at the, I made a comment about the atheists, and a fellow came up to me tonight and, and thanked me for being willing to acknowledge the legitimacy of those who are atheists. And he said, I'm one of them. And he says, but I also realize that there's, there are complicated things about all of us, that's this stuff in life, and, and I'm glad to be a part of this kind of a conversation. Yes, for us to learn from one another across all different kinds of traditions, different kinds of scholarship, different kinds of endeavor, study, we're better together. 
So, to sum that up, be open with one another. Listen. Take from that. Learn and try to understand. Amen, brother. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Preach it. (laughs) Oh, I'm not good at that. (laughs) But thank you so much for being on the show tonight. It's been an absolute blessing. It's been great to work with you through the week, hear from you. It was a great lecture you did tonight. It was great to have you on the show. It's been a real honor having you here, so just thank you so, so much. Well, thanks, you, Corbin, and thank you, Zach. And by the way, I hear the guests are going to have that video available for broadcast on, around the, uh, in the school somewhere about a month or so from now. So um, you're all welcome to, to check it out. Absolutely. I, just, I, I don't know if it'll be that long. They're pretty good about getting those up. I'm pretty sure if someone checks here in the next week or so, on YouTube, looking for University of the Ozarks with your name, Dr. Jack Haber, or watching Channel 6, they'll see it come up. Well, cool. Cool. I'll be sure to email you a link of that so you can find it later. That'll be great. I'll appreciate that. Absolutely. And one more thing before we do a closing announcement or anything. Jack, I want you to promise us that as soon as this book's ready and getting ready to be published, you let us know so we can let our listeners know how to get a hold of it. That'll be great. I'd love to do that. Thanks so much. Now, is there a publisher they can go to now to find the books you've already published? Yes, they're both in um, uh, Westminster John Knox, Westminster John Knox or, um, Press, or the easiest way to find it, of course, is Amazon. They, they're, all, they're both available on Amazon.com. Easiest thing to do is, zip, is um, just bang in my name which is h-a-b-e-r-e-r and uh, there's not many of not many people out with that last name haberer um they'll you'll find them quickly that way thank you and thanks again for coming on to the show tonight thanks for having me now before we let you go we have one last reminder and that's that the clarksville lions club is presenting a pancake breakfast tuesday march 31st at the clarksville first united methodist church They'll start serving at 6 in the, 6.30 in the morning, I'm sorry, 6.30 in the morning, and go through about 12.30 right afternoon. The cost is $5 per person now or $3 for children 12 and under. This is all you can eat. So Sounds you might want to... I wish I was going to still be here. Yeah. <laughs> it's making me hungry for pancakes every time I read this. Mm-hmm. But this is all you can eat. And if you have an order of over six or more, you can call them at 479-979-2260 and they'll deliver anywhere in the surrounding area. Again, that number is 479-979-2260, and they'll help you with getting those orders out or if you have any questions coming up about the pancake breakfast. So thanks again. Thank you, Jack, again for being here. And we're going to leave you tonight with Jerusalem, as performed by the Charlotte Church of North Carolina.